And amen. like to take our readings for today from two places. Please remain seated for a reading from Isaiah chapter 60 before we move to the New Testament and the gospel lesson from Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Chapter 60 is a glorious Advent prophecy which includes prophetic verses concerning Matthew 2, Isaiah 60, 1 through 5, the inerrant and the infallible word of the living God. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, for behold, Darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They are all gathered together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and be exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. And now a reading from the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12, as we stand together. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and has come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, where it rose, 
where it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And let me preach as if never to preach again, as a dying man to dying men. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I had my wife pull out this quotation on the way to church this morning. I I couldn't remember it exactly. But I remembered that Churchill wanted to see the action up close during World War II, despite Eisenhower's protest. And he did. He made his way up through France after it had been captured after D-Day and D-Day plus so many days. He made it ashore and the bullets were getting too close and Eisenhower said, get him out of there. Before he did, the bullets indeed got very close, whistling by his ears. And the press gathered around him and asked about his experience. And Churchill, mumbling in his inimitable way, said, Nothing in life is so exhilarating as to be shot at without result. (laughs) I couldn't remember it exactly, but thankfully May pulled it up for me. Uh, Nothing quickens the soul like something unexpected happening. Sometimes it causes us to be snapped back to reality. We needed that as a nation. In 1967, when Stanley Kramer made a movie called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, at the height of racial tension, that movie starring a man who would later become Sir Sidney Portier, one of the greatest actors, English-speaking actors ever. My, not only my estimation, but uh, Screen Movie Guild, their uh, top 25 actors of the 20th century. The storyline was pretty innocent but it was the unexpected twist of a white family and the 
girl coming home with uh, her, the boy, that she, young man that she would marry. And the girl brought home a black young man, uh, the character played by Sir Sidney Portier. Brilliantly, I might add, and he won an Academy Award later as well. He was also ambassador to Japan. I guess uh, Sidney Portier is a bit of an overachiever, <laughs> to say the least. And it was the unexpected which caused the family to deal with issues in their own lives. Guess who's coming to dinner? I've had some guess who's coming to dinner events in my own life. I don't believe they were necessarily racial, but I'll tell you one of them. Guess who's going to be your boss? Guess who's coming to the company to be your boss? Uh, I had a great boss. Now, this is in my other life. Before I went into the ministry in my uh, 20s, mid-20s, and uh, had a wonderful boss who understood me. I understood him. You know how that goes. There's good synergy, good, good vibes between the two of you. Then he left the scene, and I got a new one. I, I told May, this fellow is going to get the best of me. He just didn't like me. He hollered at me all the time, and even though he was in Chicago and I was in Kansas City, he was just a uh, hard guy to work for. He would call me up at 5 o'clock in the morning, on Sunday morning, nevertheless, and he would call me, no less, and he would call me and he would say, I'm looking at line 62, printout, page 80. I'm looking at your budget for next year. Now, how did you come up with that figure? And I would say, well, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just waking up. And he would say, now that's another thing. You always hesitate when I ask you a question. It's like you're hiding something. I said, I, I'm just waking up. It was so difficult. And he cursed all the time, and he knew I was a Christian. Guess who's going to be your boss? And I began to ask the Lord, why, Lord, did you bring this man into my life? He made life so miserable for me. He even would tell me sometimes how much he hated me because I was a Christian, because I wouldn't go out with him and the other guys. You know what? When it came time for me to answer a call to go into the ministry. He was the one God used to say to me, you know, I think you'd be better off as a minister than as a district manager of Ashland Chemical Company. I think you'd be a whole lot better off and we would too. Now, he was saying it sarcastically, but quite meaning. I, I think he meant it. And then he called me up one day, and he said, Milton? I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, I thought you'd be interested to know that I, I became a Christian. And he did. Guess who's coming to dinner? In the Bible, the question could be in Matthew, guess who's coming to the manger? Matthew is the only gospel that mentions the wise men. 
And that's very interesting because Matthew is the only gospel that is written if we are hesitant to say specifically, I think we could say most evidently for Jewish people. And yet the story is about pagan Eastern astrologers. The story is, in fact, about pagan Eastern astrologers coming to worship the king of the Jews. It can be a little uncomfortable if you're a Jewish audience reading the story and you're wanting to receive the story as the fulfillment of the son of David, of course, you were already a little put off, perhaps, by chapter 1, as, as it was preached so wonderfully just a few weeks ago, when you came to see that the lineage of Jesus is filled with complexities, let's say, that means Gentiles in some compromising situations. And even more so, you come to see that the genealogy is based not on blood, but on promise. It's not even based on blood. It's based on adoption through Joseph. So then that's messing up the whole genealogy thing you banked everything on. And now you get to chapter 2, and you're saying the first people that really recognize him as king of kings and see his star and see the fulfillment of ancient prophecy are pagan astrologers from the east. It's all rather unexpected. But it can be, you see, like a bullet whistling by your head. Nothing so exhilarating as to be shot out with no result. Nothing wakes you up like a boss screaming at you to make you come to see. Lord, I've got to stop putting this off. I've got to go into the ministry. Nothing like it in the world for a Jewish Christian to see, it must be that I'm saved not because I'm a Jew, but because of something else. And there must be some message for us, and there is. There's a message for you and me for today, because God still speaks through this story to us today about how he comes to us through these unexpected visitors to proclaim his word, his intention to us. He does that in at least three ways that I want to share with you today, though I could, I think I could spend a whole lot more time on this if, if, we were in a classroom and we had six weeks. 
It's endlessly fascinating. But let's consider three. First of all, God says to us just from this passage and this wonderful story, which, and when I say story, I mean historical truth, that God wants to reveal himself to all religions. God wanted to reveal himself to the magi, that is, the magicians, that is, the astrologers. Now, what's so interesting about this is that God condemns what they practice. He condemns it in the Old Testament. He condemns it in the New Testament. What they are likely practicing is a sort of divination that is based upon studying the heavens. Now, they also were likely, we say likely because the Scripture doesn't tell us, but we can learn from extra-biblical study that they were likely a sort of ancient scientific, there was an ancient scientific study mixed in within this, and they were laying the foundation perhaps for not only uh, uh, the study of astronomy, astrology, but also astronomy. And so there was probably some good science foundation in there along with proto-Zoroastrianism and other Near Eastern religions that were condemned as pagan and ungodly and leading to oppression and demonic oppression and clearly condemned by God. So why is it that, you might be asking, why is it that God would want to reveal himself to people like this? Well, because they need to be saved. Because God wants to reveal himself to all of the people who are searching for the truth. I had a course I taught in early, actually the first week of 2016, as we move toward the close, I'm reflecting on some of the things I taught. It was campus outreach. And for the first week of 2016, we uh, got together uh, campus ministers throughout South Carolina and a few from North Carolina, and we got together to study comparative religion because of the proliferation of various religions on campuses and they wanted to know how to deal with it. And we begin with, with the concepts of what is a religion, a cultus. A religion always has a priest, a, a belief system, an answer to the, uh, the great existential questions, who am I, why am I here, where am I going, uh, and uh, a, a, a ritual, and so forth. And then we moved into the great religions of the world, and we saw how those were answered. What did the... What did the cultists look like? What did the priesthood look like in these religions? What did the rituals look like? What were the answers to the existential questions and so forth? And we moved finally at, at length at the end of the, cor end of the course into philosophies like uh, from Nietzsche uh, to Michael Foucault and into postmodernism, and, and we dealt with that. But what we begin to see at the end of the course as I asked the students to reflect on the courts, was this. They were all the same in this sense. They were asking 
when I hold a baby in my arms and look into its eyes and see the glistening, the sparkling little eyes, and I see the hope of a whole life before the child. What is this life? What is this power that gives such life? Or when I stand in a field in, on a summer night and I look up at the stars and I see the, uh, the myriad of stars, the innumerable lights in the heavens, and I see myself as so small, and I ask myself, who, what is this supreme power holding these things all together? It can't be luck. Or I bury my father or my mother. And I'm faced with my own mortality. I ask the question, where do we go? Is this all there is? Is there more? God still desires to reach all religions because those questions are being asked by the people he created, more so the questions he actually placed within them. And he was leading the Magi, who in some sense represent all of the world, prophesied in Isaiah 60 and so many other places, to say, here's the answer. Jesus. God in the flesh. As T.S. Eliot said in his wonderful Thin but gigantic poetical work, the four quartets. He's the hint, half guest. He's mysterious. He's the he's the one that's somehow deposited in the heart of all of us, the yearning that we have when we do look in the baby's eye, the yearning that we have when we mourn, the yearning that we have when we look into the sky, that's Christ. And then the question becomes, what are we as his people doing in response? Because you can see clearly the link then when Jesus says to his disciples at the ascension, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It was never to be just about me and my clubhouse for the Jewish people. Neither is it to be about just me and my family or me and my church, me and my community, me and my country. It's always to be about 
as many as we can reach for his sake, for his glory. God, in this unexpected company of visitors, wanted to say to you today, I want to reach all religions. And we live in a day where the religions of the world have come to our shores. They have even come to our community. Yes, they're even in Monroe, North Carolina. And yes, they are in Indian Trail, North Carolina. They are here. They are our neighbors. And God desires to reach them. He created them. He loves them. There are longings in their heart. We must bring them to the manger and to the cross and to the empty tomb. He also wants to show us in these unexpected visitors how he he wants to not only reveal himself, but to all the religions, but to reach all all races. And when I say races, there's only one race, the human race, but I mean by that all ethnicities. Again, the, the Hebrew people always had to be prompted to, as Jonah had to be prompted to reach out to the Ninevites, his enemy, to bring the gospel to him, and God brought revival to the Ninevites and Jonah, the Hebrews had to be prompted to see that they had to cross over into the lives of people who were unlike themselves. The church that where my wife and I served in Chattanooga was First Presbyterian Church of Chattanooga. That church was founded as a mission to the Cherokee Indians, and the church was really then founded as a mission by missionaries who came from the Brainerd Mission in New England, uh, who had previously been under Jonathan Edwards in in the 17th century, and they came here, and then when the Trail of Tears happened, the uh, missionaries went as far as they could, and then they came back, and that's how the church was founded. And the church has had a great, great missions, world missions zeal ever since. But I remember being there and remember feeling that we had to always be mindful of not only those around the world, but those around the block. Anyone who is different than I am. Because, you see, beneath, right right beneath here, I'll not go too much further with this, I assure you. There's a T-shirt there and then ugliness beyond. <laughs> Under there, there's a germ. God has to deal with it all the time. It's called selfishness, prejudice. It's not, it's, not a, it's not simply about uh, color of skin or, or, or language or geography. It, it's anything. You know, a, a bunch of little boys build a treehouse and they put a sign. What's, what do these little boys put up the sign on the treehouse as soon as they build the treehouse? No what? 
girls. And little girls and boys will build a treehouse, and they live on Oak Street. And the first thing they put up is a sign, no kids from Pine Street. We, that germ just shows up all the time, all the time, in one way or the other. Now, Christ destroys that over time. The more the gospel gets in, the more that, that germ gets hit by the gospel of Christ as Christ is exalted. And we see that we have to be lowered, that the way up is down, and that we recognize that we're saved by grace alone, not through anything we present. And this had to be dealt with. Why does Matthew, of all the gospel writers, deal with the Magi? They needed to know that God loves other people too. The covenant of grace was not only for them, it was for everyone. And finally, in all of this, we see that God seeks to revive the resting and the reticent. Yes, I'm hung up on ours this morning, but I had a trill of ours coming out, I guess, when I wrote the sermon. Let's just say it another way. He, he wants to reach the complacent. And that's also part of Mark's gospel, uh, Matthew's gospel. From along the Silk Road came these magi. Were there three? There were three gifts mentioned, and therefore we think there were three magi. The Bible doesn't say. Maybe there were. We three kings of Orient are. Syrian Christians believe there were 12 in legend. Perhaps they came along the Silk Trail. The Mongolians say that they had participants there. The Persians say they had some there. The Babylonians, the modern-day Iraqis say they were there. The North Africans say that they were there. And many, they, they could have all been there. And there could have been three, there could have been 12. The important thing is that they were representing those of other religions, of other races, of other geographic parts of the world who came in fulfillment of the Old Testament to worship Jesus Christ, to worship him, it says, to worship him. And what will we do? How will we respond? I close with this. A number of years ago, I was in Albania when the wall fell, uh, the communist uh, wall, as Churchill called it, the, the wall, in his speech at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri. The Iron Curtain, as he called it. 
last country to come out was Albania. I would started Albanian Naval Intelligence, and I was there uh, on behalf of World Magazine as well as on behalf of Coleridge Presbyterian Church as on a mission. And I had these uh, British folks with me. They handed out literature. I was in the town of Kooks. That sounds funny. K-U-K-E dot over it, two dots, S. It's way up in the Albanian highlands in the Albanian Alps on the border of uh, old Yugoslavia. And I preached, and I preached the gospel, and at the end of it, in this little town, I was standing on a, on a, a fountain, a civic concrete fountain. And my British friends were handing out literature. They couldn't speak Albanian. And uh, I had got all the permits and, to do so. And at the end of it, the screaming of police sirens interrupted our very peaceful but crowded uh, evangelistic time. And they came up to me, and in Albanian, they said, the police commissioner would like to see you. Now, you must come with us and go into the van, you and your party. I said to them, I said, now, I've got all, all the permits, everything I've got. I said, now, you must go now. Police commissioner wants you. And I tell you what, the, the British folks, they were looking at me with skepticism, said, I, I, we, thought you got the, we thought you got the permits. They were getting mad at me. And I said, well, I did. And they said, come now, they said in Albanian. And they said, what is he saying? I had to interpret. I said, he, he's saying we got to go. We got to go with him. So we got in the van and we went and they brought us to this old hotel. We had seen it. We were going to stay there that, that night. It was an 18th century hotel with 19th century accommodations and uh, very up to date. And uh, what I learned was it was also a place for rogues, travelers, uh, people who had gotten lost in the Alps. And it was also the place of the police commissioner where he ruled the roost. And his lieutenants were gathered around this, this giant oak table. And he had a curious fellow next to him. Well, I'll tell you about him. And so we came in. They all stood up at, at once following the police commissioner who looked just like Robert De Niro. And so Robert De Niro stood up. And uh, I came in and they brought, the police brought me in and they stood me at the other end of the table. It was a long table. And we sat down. Robert De Niro sat down and everyone else sat down. The fellow next to him, he had a uh, little Albanian felt cap on his head. He looked like a, one of the goats, the countless goats that I had seen on the side of the Albanian Alps with the hollowed out cheeks and deep set eyes, blue piercing. And he, he had one of the little Dimitas cups and the settlement of the uh, Turkish coffee was at the bottom. It's so syrupy sweet. And his tongue was dipping down in it as he looked at me. And he reminded me, I, I, I rather thought he was watching me out of entertainment. He was thinking, this American preacher is about to be devoured bit by agonizing bit by Robert De Niro, and I'm going to enjoy this. The police commissioner said, well... I hear that you have come to our town to preach. 
And I said, yes, as a matter of fact, Mr. Commissioner, we've gotten all the permits. And he interrupted me and he said, I have brought all of my men here. Now, please, tell us about this Jesus whom you preach. And for three hours, I did. And then I asked them, these rough mountain men, if they would hold hands with me. And they bowed their heads, and we prayed, and I asked the Lord to send his spirit into their hearts that they might receive the Lord. They became unexpected visitors in my life to show me that God is at work in ways I can never know, far away lands in the people that he created, that he loves in a way I could never know. And you see, that brings us to the most unexpected visitor of all. And that's Jesus. God in the flesh. In the manger, at Church of the Redeemer, and in the hearts of all of those who welcome him. Let us pray. Thank you, Christ, for upsetting our lives, coming into our lives, broadening our vision to see that you can do the impossible, that the impossible was done in your birth, in your life in your redemption, and in your present ministry in this room right now as you heal, as you heal painful memories, as you touch families and bring them together, as you reunite friends. as you open spirits that have been cold and distant to you. And without answering all of the questions they may have, you answer the central question that you are there and that you love them and that there is a way to eternal life through your life lived for them and your death on a cross. Send your Holy Spirit that we may be awakened from the complacency that we often suffer, from the blindness of spirit, from the germs of prejudice, from the sickness of small-mindedness, Help us to go out from this place and live as if we are your sons and daughters.
and as if you were coming again. In Jesus' name, amen.